0: Hello and welcome. My name is Kyle Nielsen, and this is How You Level Up, a podcast where I ask questions to help you become your best self. Today, we ask what is culture? Where does it come from? What does it represent? There are a few things that culture is it is holistic. Meaning that culture functions as an integrated and complex whole, it is more than the sum of its parts. It is learned, and it's learned through rules and norms shared via communication, both conscious and unconscious. And it is dynamic, so it is subject to change over time, it is not static. In terms of culture being holistic, look around you. What are the everyday items you carry with you? What are the items in your room where you are? Stop and point out three. And now think of all the other places where these three items are found. What do each of these three items do for you or for someone else? Do these items interact with each other in any other way? You can think of these items, and any item in your pocket, as artifacts. They are the material objects within your culture. Could you find these artifacts in other cultures? Yes? Then there might be similarities between your culture and the one that you're thinking of. Would you find this artifact in every culture? No, then this artifact is unique to your culture in a particular way. Artifacts constitute a society's material culture. In pre-industrial societies, artifacts were largely limited to tools, the structures people slept in, and the clothing they wore. For industrial societies, technology begins to complicate things. Artifacts in these societies would be smartphones, laptops, a seated desk that can electronically lift into a standing position, AC units, a Google Home or Alexa in your room, and so on. If a person from a pre-industrial society visits an industrial society, they would not know the importance of a smartphone, or what it is capable of doing just in the same manner that a person from an industrial society would not know what a common tool is and what it might be used to accomplish. These artifacts are pieces of culture, creating a deeper meaning when together. In terms of being learned, cultures across the world have different values, norms, and symbols, so these must be taught to children. In many Western cultures, value is placed on the individual. In many Eastern cultures, value is placed on the collective. For a collective culture, the value is placed on people, families, and their connection to others, and is often upheld through an emphasis on moral obligation. In a collective culture, individuals are part of a group and work with the group to accomplish things for the group. And on the flip side, individualistic cultures teach people that your success is up to you, that you can receive help when you ask, though that help leads to your accomplishments. In this sense, individualistic cultures promote autonomy of the individual. It is important to note here that no one culture is inherently better or worse than another culture, and that the values taught in India are are no better or worse than the values taught in Canada. There is a spectrum of value across individualistic and collectivist cultural values. We are seeking to identify general frameworks with which we can say, I seem to live in a culture closer to this value or the other. Think to things you were taught of as being the most important. Is taking care of your family more important than taking care of yourself. Surely situations will dictate this, though, which statement do you hear in your head? Make sure to take care of yourself first, or make sure to take care of your mother, brother. Whose voice are you hearing say this to you? What else has this voice taught you is important when it comes to norms. Norms come in two shapes formal and informal norms. Formal norms are the laws of the land, or the rules of an organization. Laws in Canada are different than laws in Mexico, in some respect. Rules in a corporate setting are different than rules in a college setting, again to some respect. Do you hear a voice in your head saying, don't do that because it breaks the law, or make sure not to do that in college? Or, don't do that in this environment. Or, we'd like to do X instead of Y. You get the point. Informal norms are the expected standard behaviors of individuals, and while less important, they influence the people of a culture. Think of the expected behavior at dinner for a Catholic person compared to the expected behavior for tribes in Tanzania. The first group eats with utensils at a table, and the latter eat with their hands and sit on mats or short stools. Again, no one is better or worse than the other. They're simply different, and we can articulate the frameworks of them. And what about symbols of a culture? Well, symbols can be used for a few things, like the nonverbal gestures of your body, common shapes and designs, Nonverbal symbols are a thumbs up or a thumbs down, which means good or bad in some Western cultures. And in Middle Eastern cultures, even a thumbs up is a bad sign and one to avoid. Another nonverbal symbol is the hook'em horn's hand signal, also used in the music genre of metal or rock. Well, for some Mediterranean and Latin cultures, this horned finger symbol means your significant other is cheating on you. The cultural symbols in shape, form, are easy. A six-pointed star for Judaism, the cross for Christianity, the crescent moon of Islam, or Hindi, or of spirituality. These symbols are deep with history and meaning, and they can be complex, like a crest or a flag. For all of these, whether it's the values, the norms, or the symbols of a culture, you learn them. You were taught them and what they represent. When you visit another culture, it's good etiquette to learn a few of their symbols and norms so as not to unintentionally offend. Especially when you might want to have a relationship with someone from this other culture. Whether that relationship be for friendship, business, or something else entirely. And what about culture in terms of being dynamic. Well, think about your own culture, what aspects of your culture have changed over time. What was something that was commonplace for your grandparents, and is something you and your friends would never do? What spurred this change in your culture? There are a few cultures that stay the same through time, those cultures which are static, that do not change, will often see members of their culture begin to abandon it. Of course, all cultures are conservative in nature and tend to resist change, so it is often up to discourse to facilitate that change, for members and leaders of the culture to hold debates and discussions about the present and near future adaptations. All of what we have already listed is part of culture and is subject to change, as is another piece of culture, the language. Language is a big one to discuss. And we will ask more of language on a different day, so for now we can acknowledge that language affects culture through the way we describe our world. We use words to describe things, places, and experiences. Language is used to teach culture to new generations. It is used to tell the history of a culture, to share stories, and to enlighten minds. In the telling of stories, this is specifically called social preservation, and it is the narratives preserved and retold and used to frame future events. Social preservation is a process-based thing, so it's ongoing and iterative often favouring plausibility over accuracy. This means that social preservation favours coherent stories over valid accuracy of the stories. Language can also create a divide within a culture, by having one language for the privileged and one language for the underprivileged. What does this mean? It means that the metaphors, the slang, and the colloquialisms you use within your culture can help others to identify you as part of a class within a culture. This applies to both speaking and written language. Think about abbreviations that you use in your texts or emails. Do you spell you as Y-O-U, or just the letter U? Are you using abbreviations unique to a subculture to which you belong, like in sales or marketing? Are the words you use to describe things complex or simple? What judgments do you subconsciously make when you hear someone speak a turn of phrase and it's not how you would say it? What judgments do you make when you hear an accent? Do you presume what their interests are or how their schooling may have been received? What do you think of someone who speaks quote-unquote properly, Undoubtedly, we know that by asking these questions, we begin to realize how much we presume or subconsciously judge others through language. Even if you catch yourself in a judgment and say, no, I'm going to get to know this person before I assume about their life, you attempt to use language to understand a person, which is not necessarily bad, unless, of course, your assumptions lead you to believe that the person is less than you in any manner of speaking. When it comes to culture, there are a lot of other dynamic pieces we could touch on, like cultural engagement on an individual level, on an organizational level, and on a societal level. Firstly, we can identify what is called diffusion communication. This refers to the spread of ideas and practices from one culture to another. Have you ever traveled to another country and heard a popular song playing in a club, bar, or cafe from your country? And what about the artifacts that are around you that might be from another culture, that you have adopted now, or have seen others adopt? This plays right into acculturation, which is the phenomena resulting from when groups of different cultures have contact. This contact initiates continuous and subsequent changes to both cultures. We can distinguish this from a single culture changing by itself, where a culture goes through a specific change, though it's good to know that when a culture does change, the phase of acculturation is part of it. Of course, you've heard of globalization, which is the multiplicity of linkages and interconnections that transcend the nation-states, which make up the modern world. What happens in your culture can affect another culture without you realizing it. An easy one to think about is the holidays. Sometimes there are periods of the year where people of one culture will take off, and this has large implications for others around the world. One location can create significant consequences in another, and globalization can lead to fragmentation of existing societies. And for cultures engaging one another, we cannot leave out hegemony, which operates through ideology, political, economic, and military predominance of one state over another. Taken together, they produce societal relations between cultures, and in these relations, organizational members might consent to a dominant, powerful group over them. This is not quite the same as imperialism, which is when one state leader dictates the internal politics and societal character of the subordinate state. Though some might argue it's one and the same, often the difference is the amount of force used in such dominant and subordinate relations. And when a culture engages with organizations, what about that? Well, we have what is called glocalization. That's glocalization with a C instead of a B. This refers to the strategic choices made by multinational corporations to adapt their products and services in a foreign market and influence local consumer acceptance. More specifically is localization. and This is when an organization adapts a product, service, or advertisement to a specific market. You can imagine holiday advertising, gender products, and even service changes from one culture to another as an example of this. One specific thing is when a movie is shown in the United States, and then is changed when it is shown in China, this is localization. On the not-so-bright side of organizations engaging with culture, we have news as a historic reality. The news is a form of culture invented by the middle class in around the 18th century. We can look at the news in two different types of communication views. There is the transmission view of communication, which is of course imparting, sending, and transmitting information to each other. And then we can look at communication as a ritual view, this was first proposed by James W. Carey, an American communication theorist and media critic. For communication through a ritual view, communication is not an extension of messages in space, it is the maintenance of society in time. As Carey says himself, if the archetypal case of communication under a transmission view is the extension of messages across geography for the purpose of control, The archetypal case under a ritual view is the sacred ceremony that draws persons together in a fellowship and commonality. So, if we look at news under a ritual view, news is not information, it is drama. News moves the imparting of information to sharing, participating, and holding a possession of a common faith or ideology. This moves us towards something that is called systematically distorted communication which is an instrumental manipulation of language by interests in money and power. The result is the corruption of our everyday network of communication practice. If you haven't read 1984 by George Orwell, there are spoilers ahead. In it, the government controls the population through language and information. Within the story of 1984, the term doublethink is a method for controlling thought and Newspeak is a method for controlling language. Through propaganda, the government, in 1984, has three slogans. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. These slogans, while born in a fictitious world, confuse and disrupt the subject of the government to hold a belief while forgetting reality. An example from within the book Was that the government was at war with country A and friendly with country B, and then swapped and propagated the idea that the government had always been at war with country B and was friendly with country A. Clearly a form of hypocrisy. And so if doublethink controls the mind in 1984 and newspeak controls the language, it does so by containing many words that create assumed associations between contradictory meanings. This is especially true of fundamentally important words such as good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehood, justice and injustice. Examples of Newspeak in 1984 were that they changed the meaning of words. Sometimes they would create new words and reject the old words once they were replaced. What do you think the limitations and complete control of language could do to a person? This is another thing we will explore in another episode. But we've lost ourselves here. So, we're on our way to understand individuals engaging with culture, now that we've looked at organizations engaging with culture, and cultures engaging with culture. For the individual, first and foremost is identification. Identification is the rhetorical process through which members construct themselves in alignment with an organization's key goals and values. One consequence of intercultural contact is to react against it and increase one's identification with their own culture. In communication theory, nationalism is when an individual holds onto their own culture and avoids engaging with other cultures. This can be good or bad, depending upon how extreme the nationalism is rooted. Of course, You want where you live to thrive and prosper. Of course, you want to help others. So, which comes first? Which is more important? How strongly or softly you hold your identity from a cultural lens shapes how you will react in certain circumstances. The opposite of this is assimilation strategy, which is when people do not wish to maintain cultural identity with their own culture and seek interaction from other cultures. And where do they seek this information? They go to a public sphere. This is a common realm or arena in which public discourse is pronounced. Sort of like a Greek polis where everyone is sitting on stadium seats and they're all talking. In today's world, social media is the public sphere more than anywhere else. Lest we ignore, there is also the counter-public sphere. And this emerges when public actors perceive themselves to be excluded or marginalized from the mainstream or dominant public sphere. A counter-public sphere needs to be sufficient in size to capture and characterize all communication outside of the public sphere. And so, as a whole, there's a lot to unpack about culture. Even more than we've discussed here and questioned today. Cultures engage with each other, organizations engage with them, and you as an individual engage with your culture and those around. Cultures are holistic, they are learned, and they are dynamic. So what more now can you notice about your culture? What more can you notice about other cultures? What cultural artifacts and norms do you engage and enact with? What cultural values do you absorb or see absorbed in others? What do you want from your culture? What change do you see on the horizon? And where might that lead next? Thank you for listening to another episode. If you're enjoying the show, open up the app you're listening to this on and hit the like or subscribe button